As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. If you're not yet a subscriber to The Athletic, now's the time with our best offer ever. Sign up today and you'll pay just £1 a month for the next six months, giving you unrivaled insight and analysis of everything Euro 2020 and taking you well into the new Premier League season two. The Athletic is the only place you can read pieces by award-winning writers like Michael Cox, Rafa Honigstein, Amy Lawrence and Daniel Taylor. And when you subscribe, you'll also get ad-free versions of all of The Athletic's podcasts from across its audio network. Head to theathletic.com slash totally and become a subscriber today for six quid until the end of the year. That's theathletic.com slash totally. Good afternoon, passengers. This is a pre-boarding announcement for flight 89. Please have your boarding pass and identification ready. Baku, Sevilla, Amsterdam, Glasgow, München, Sankt Petersburg, Bukarest, Budapest, Copenhagen, Roma, London. Unbelievable. We're back after the longest football-free period since that England-Scotland game. Euro 2020 returns with the last 16 in Amsterdam. Great Danes and a Wales side as leaky as a national stereotype. And at Wembley, Laser Blazer sees Austria beaten by Chiesa, but Italy exposed like they were managed by Roberto Manchini. Our thoughts on those matches and Sunday's games coming up. Belgium against Portugal, Big Rom v Big Rom. Will Netherlands go Dutch when they get the checks? And we relive this. Sixth Orson. Oh, my oh word. My oh. It's the Totally Football Show at the Euros in association with Paddy Power. Hello, listener. Sunday, 27th of June. Thank you for making it totally. And thanks very much to Matt Davis-Adams for his excellent work helming totally through the group stages of this Euros while I was off at the Strongman. And you will never guess what happened there. But it's a closely guarded secret. With us today, Sasha Gurionov. Hello, Sasha. Hi, James. And also Tom Williams. Hello, James. Hello. For you, Tommy, the Euros is over. Uh, I mean, I'm going to carry on watching, but I, yes, for, for my national team, it is sadly over. Hey, Tom, join the club. We can both grieve together, Sash. 
No, no, I was going to say exactly the opposite. If you can't beat them, join them. I was very much enjoying supporting Denmark today, and they're a brilliant team to follow. All right. Uh, well, next up, Denmark will be facing the Netherlands. If the Netherlands get past the Czech Republic, uh, again, that we'll be talking about a little, a little bit later on with our big pal, Mikhail Jongsma. Uh, Wales, of course, out. Also, Austria out after a, a thrilling extra time. It was something of a slow burner, that game. Uh, but we'll be talking about the uh, the Italy-Austria game at Wembley uh, and and much, much more. But let's begin, if that's all right with you, Tom, with the Wales-Denmark afternoon excitement. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The sound there of Kasper Dolberg's sumptuous curling opener Saturday at the Johan Cruyff Arena in Amsterdam as Denmark, the first team in Euros history to reach the knockout stages after losing their opening two group games, continued their remarkable campaign with a 4-0 win over Wales. We'll get Tom's thoughts and Sasha's very, very shortly. First, on the line from Copenhagen, Eurosport TV's Nils Harold. Nils, hello. Hi. Hi, how's it going? Very well, thank you. And how are you, sir? Uh, Copenhagen is busy at the moment. There's a party going on in the streets right now. Everybody's out celebrating the victory. So it's a good night in Copenhagen, yeah. Crikey. It was a bright start uh, by Wales. But after that first Dolberg strike, it was pretty much picture perfect from your boys. When was the last time you saw them put in a performance that note perfect? Uh, I have to go a little while back, but I do think that in the Nations League we played a very good uh, game against England and obviously against Austria, uh, who we put four goals against in the, the World Cup qualifiers. So, uh, yeah, it's it's a good team and it, it seems to be able to adjust to a game. Uh, and that's very much what we're talking about in Denmark, the ability to change the plan within the game. That's very good. All right. Well, tell us about the, the key change then in this one, which which swung the the match. Yeah, but yeah. After 15 minutes, Casper um, Juhlmann put Andreas Christensen in front of the back four, so it meant he was playing like a six, uh, number six in the, in the team, and he was more like a defensive midfielder uh, moving up from the defense, and that made a big change. That that changed the shape of the team and changed the way the the team attacked uh, the game, and from there it was. It was getting better, better, better every time they had the ball almost. Nils, I think a lot of people have been enjoying Denmark's progress. Sasha, I know, uh, was was rooting for you today. Denmark have become a lot of people's second team. And this the, the hmm. narrative is so strong of the campaign that began in anguish, which is now bringing so much euphoria to the streets of, of Denmark. But this is beyond the kind of the team on the mission narrative. This is a remarkably uh, gifted team, no? Yeah, there's a gifted team, and if uh, first of all, this is a team. This is a team that Casper uh, Juhlmann is always emphasizing how much they stand shoulder by shoulder. How much is a team that can that can uh, change the shape, that can work together, and obviously the the, the terrible experience in the first game has made them a bigger team, a better team. But also look at the the clubs they are playing for. They're playing for FC Barcelona. They're playing for AC Milan. They're playing for Chelsea, Tottenham. Uh, and uh, lots of Premier League clubs. And obviously, these are players who are used to performing at the big stage. And you can see that now. Mm. 
Nils, I'm sure you, you won't make bold predictions about <laughs> their potential in this tournament, but 29 years to the day uh, this victory came after the, 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 the famous uh, title in 1992. So, and I bet that one felt unlikely as well. Is there, is there a kind of groundswell of uh, people daring to dream now? Yeah, it's coming, isn't it? I mean, uh, we, we have to we have to look to the next game a week from now in Baku. But obviously, everybody's, especially today, have been talking a lot about miracles happening in football. Today, the 26th of June, 1992, against Germany, 2-0. Obviously, now people are starting to dream. I can see in the newspapers, I can see in the articles, everybody is starting to... They are starting to view us as an outsider for the final, but obviously there's there's a lot of way to go now. I need a, just a quick question for you. Um, this team, as we have seen in the last two games, actually as we have seen over the last couple of years, they're quite, they're very attacking, they're quite flamboyant. Is it too early to start comparing them to the Danish dynamite team of the mid '80s? Because I mean, '92 team was a bit more conservative, but this is this team is really playing free flowing football. Yeah, that's that's a good point because the '92 team was a very very controlled team. You know, in the final against Germany, I think they had 26 bypasses to the keeper to Peter Schmeichel. Yeah, the '86 team is the obvious comparison, but it's also I think they're a little bit tired of hearing that all the time. You know, that I think they they want to create the own sto- their own story. But if you have to compare it to a team, maybe the team in '98. Remember that team that got to the quarterfinal at the World Cup with Michael Laudrup and Ebersand and players like that? I think that maybe they're closer to that uh, as, as far as I can see. Mm. All right, Nils. Well, listen, you, you go off and enjoy the, the, the nighttime antics in, in Copenhagen and, and we'll, we'll catch up with you in and around the clash with either Netherlands or, or, or the Czech Republic. Yeah, I think they closed some streets in Copenhagen now because of the party going on. So I think I better have to take a look at that now. Absolutely. Journalistic duty and that. Thank you so much for being with us, Nils. (laughs) Thank you so much. Nils Harold there. Well, Tom, first of all, that was a phenomenal goal to open the scoring from uh, Kasper Dolberg. Yeah, uh, fantastic goal. Um, and uh, a goal that arrived at just the right time for Denmark uh, and just the wrong time for Wales. Uh, and as you said to Niels, Wales started the game really brightly. First 10 minutes, Gareth Bale was picking up the ball in, in, in dangerous areas, getting a couple of shots off, and you started to wonder whether Wales were about to take control. And then Denmark make that uh, quite subtle tactical change of moving uh, Andreas Christensen in, into midfield, and, and that gave them the platform. And, and Dolborg scores a, a lovely opener set up by Mikael Damsgaard, who's really come to life in the last couple of matches. And then Dolborg gets his second early in the second half, and it it reminded me quite a lot of the manner in which Wales went out of Euro 2016 against Portugal. Um, we'd kind of gone all the way to the semi-final. There was all this hope. And then Portugal scored two quick goals early in the second half. And you just knew as soon as the second goal went in that it was over. And it was the same sort of feeling against Denmark. Uh, and then they get the third goal right at the end. And you're just sort of getting used to the, the idea that it's going to be a 3-0 defeat. And you're thinking, well, they, they probably just about deserve that. And then Harry Wilson gets sent off undeservedly. And that sticks in the craw a little bit. And then they get a fourth goal, Denmark, in stoppage time. Uh, and it ends up being uh, a fairly miserable afternoon. Uh, but yeah, mm. no real complaints about the outcome. Uh, Denmark were, were worthy winners. Uh, and Wales's uh, second Euro adventure in, in the last five years comes to an end. 
Mm. Some wonderful lip reading opportunities from Joe Roden uh, after the second goal went in. Gareth Bale, meanwhile, whose future, of course, was one of the big question marks hanging over this game. Uh, where do we stand now with that after he walked out of the BBC interview? He, he was more forthcoming with S4C, I believe. Yes. So he very abruptly and, and quite strangely, I thought, just declined to answer a question uh, when it was put to him by uh, the BBC Touchline reporter, um, a question about his, his future, which, as we know, has been the subject of, of great speculation the last few weeks. But then he was asked about it in an S4C interview. He, he sort of gave the impression that he was committed to Wales, at least in in the immediate future, that he's going to be there for the resumption of the World Cup qualifiers and that, you know, he wants to carry on playing for Wales as long as he continues playing football. And it made me wonder whether we might be about to see the first time ever that a player retires from club football to concentrate uniquely on his international career. Because as we know, he's got a year left on his contract at Real Madrid. Um, but, you know, given the, the cloud beneath which he departed Madrid when he went back to, to Spurs on loan, it's hard to see him ever really being happy there. So, yeah, there is a big, a big question mark about his future. And although he... You know, he, he still seems committed to Wales. If, you know, he has said that he's going to make an announcement about his future uh, at some point in, in the coming days, the coming weeks. And you suspect it is going to be a bit of a bombshell because he's been teasing it for the best part of a month. I have a wild stab in the dark. What do you think it's going to be? I mean, I, it wouldn't surprise me if he... He's built it up so much, perhaps unintentionally, but it just makes me think he's going to do something a bit left field. So maybe he is going to stop playing club football or something, or maybe he's going to move somewhere unexpected, or maybe he's going to try and make it as a golf pro. I don't know, but it, <laughs> there's something about it. You, you feel like he is going to surprise us in some way. Right. I'm looking forward to that. Meantime, I knew you as an avid student of the French game will have uh, been excited for Casper Dolberg with his brace today after the, the travails that he's been through. This is actually a story that uh, producer Charlie immediately... Uh, reminded us of but we we reported in our first ever euro totally football show way back in october 2019 the dolberg watch affair yes yeah i'd actually forgotten about that so um casper dolberg was the first relatively big name signing that nice made after they were bought by ineos uh, the british petrochemicals firm that owns the ineos cycling team etc um, and this this takeover deal was rumbling on over the summer of 2019 and it went through about three days before the transfer window closed and Dolberg was about the only player they managed to bring in. So there was a lot of focus on him right from the start. One of the first things that happens to him is that he gets his, this quite expensive watch stolen by a teammate uh, who was subsequently sacked uh, by, uh, by Nice. Um, actually had quite a good first season, Dolberg, uh, in a fairly middling team under Patrick Vieira. Um, and then last season had a terrible time of it. He had coronavirus at the start of the season. He had all sorts of injury problems. He had to have his appendix removed in February and he was out for about four weeks. He ended up finishing the season with only about five goals. And you know, the expectation with Dolberg, you know, going back to his Ajax days, was that he would end up being you know, Denmark's main centre forward. And actually he didn't start um, the first game, perhaps even the first two games at this tournament. But you know, back in the starting eleven. Uh, today and yeah gave a gave a glimpse of what he's capable of uh, for me uh, today's match was eerily similar to what happened to Russia because um, Denmark get a worldie Denmark pounce a mistake and then Mele 
delivers the coup de grace, uh, perhaps that, you know, it's appropriate that he's called Joachim, like cavalry riding in and riding down the opponent. And I thought um, overall, and also actually against Russia, Christensen was stepping up into midfield as well. So I think it is, they took a lot from that game and almost Yulman, everything he touches at the moment turns to gold because obviously they lost Polson, but then Dolberg comes in and slots in absolutely perfectly. And also I thought it was quite interesting the way that Christensen was used, that he, they, they didn't really play through him. He was there purely to break, break a play. I mean, I think if you look at the passing stats, not absolutely nothing goes through him. So he's there to challenge, uh, I think, either Kiefer Moore to break up stuff around Ramsey. I thought very smart and very, uh, very cute move because also after an hour, they move them back, they go back to the back three and they just did, just defend, see the whole game out. So it's very, uh, like I, I thought, whereas against Russia, it was still a very emotional performance. Th- this time against Wales, I think they came out to show what they can do. It was, ve- it was very much, we are here, we are very good at football and we will beat you without as much emotional background as there was uh, with the Russia game. So they showed kind of two levels of, I think, almost emotional maturity. And also, <laughs> all talk of Denmark moving away, they went to Amsterdam and they played another home game. Uh, I think it's 15,000 Danish fans there or something like that, which I thought, again, was quite important. So I- I'm actually curious how many of those Roligans are going to make going to make it to Baku for the quarterfinals because mm. the travel is a bit inconvenient and what well that would probably be a proper neutral venue for them so let's see how they do there. Let's um, two questions one can you explain the Joaquin reference and and two are you, are you backing them in that quarterfinal? Uh, Joaquin it's uh, Joaquin Murat uh, he was the famous uh, cavalry commander under Napoleon. And, uh, you know, obviously, cavalry would strike in a de- decisive moment and, you know... Oh, yeah, of course, sorry. The, yeah, ob- obviously. Sorry, Sasha, that should have got Strike that. down the fle- fleeing enemy. Uh, and uh, apart from it, look, uh, if you look at how the game is organised, and if they, for example, come up against Holland, I mean, I think tactically, and they, they, they will do Holland. I think perhaps if they come up against Czech Republic, uh, the Czechs might suffocate the game quite well. But once it gets to the semi-finals, if they do get to the semi-finals, it's anybody's game. So um, I'm, I'm still not sure about all the way. I think Wesley Snyder was predicting before the tournament that Denmark could go all the way. I think that's a bit mad. Uh, but certainly they've shown, actually throughout all of this tournament, because even in the first games, they dominated. They should have, they should have been winning. And I think it's great that they had like you know three games to get it right. And I think certainly the way they're on their roll at the moment, um, it's, it's uh, hard not to back them in the quarterfinals against whoever they face. Netherlands will be facing the Czech Republic on Sunday. We'll be hearing from Mikhail very shortly on that. A last thought for now on Wales, Tom? Yeah, I mean, obvious disappointment. I think it was un- it was unfortunate in a way that this tournament came so soon after Euro 2016 because that, that created such a sort of sense of expectation in a way that this team was always going to struggle to live up to. You look at that Euro 2016 team and almost every player in the starting 11 was a Premier League player. This was a much more of a ragtag team Premier League reserves, championship players, championship reserves. I think what stands Wales in good stead is that this is quite a young squad. I think it was something like the third youngest squad at the tournament. And the next generation of Wales internationals, players like Joe Rodon, Harry Wilson, Ethan Ampadu, Dan James, have now got that major tournament experience. There are question marks over the futures of players like Gareth Bale, how much playing time Aaron Ramsey is going to get at Juventus next season. But I think globally speaking, it's been a positive experience um, qualified for only their third major tournament, got out of quite a competitive group um, and you know, managed to avoid complete disgrace. Uh, and lest any Wales fan get too despondent, uh, a reminder that in the space of one week at Euro 2016, 
Wales won more European Championship knockout matches than England have won in the tournament's entire history. Oof. Mm. Nicely done. Very good. Not, in, not entirely relevant to this tournament, but, you know, always good to end on a, on a positive note. Indeed. Next up, off to Wembley. The Euros are here, and we'd better make the most of them, because they only come around every four, uh, five years. So if your bookie isn't making you feel special, then maybe it's time to find a new one. Yep, not so much carpe diem as carpa diem. Hmm. If the grass is greener on the other side, come and play on it. If your bookie's not giving you the best rewards, switch, and you'll get a completely free £5 bet builder on England v Germany this Tuesday. Paddy Power. Pre-match bet builder bets only match one free bet, min two plus legs online exclusive, must have previously deposited T's and C's apply, and plus be gambler.org. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Italy, Austria, Saturday night. Italy, managed by Belloc out of Rages of the Lost Ark. A 2-1 winners after extra time. The Zuri had started well but couldn't convert their chances. The Austrians then had the better chances in the second half but had a goal by Arnautovic ruled out. In extra time, Man chose two substitutes made the difference, especially Federico. Pessina also scoring and then Italy conceding their first goal in 1,169, was it, minutes? Yes. Uh, but riding out 2-1 winners and through to the quarterfinals they go. Me, a simple person following the football, was extremely excited by Federico Chiesa's wonderful chop and shot. But Sasha, clever folk like you saw the bigger picture. Tell us. Well, it wasn't really clever folk. I was just be, just sheer horror. I was like, what is Alaba? And I had to have, had to have another look. And I think it's Piscina who makes a diagonal run, takes Alaba away, and Lima doesn't realise what's going on and doesn't cover and then he's too late um, so I think it's Piscina that actually creates that goal of course and he scores the other one so for me uh, Matteo Piscina of Atalanta is a hero of the day just like Mele was a hero for Denmark earlier Right although Chiesa's goal was pretty special yeah, wasn't it well the, taken the well chop taken. inside Bergkamp against Argentina 1998-esque some people were calling it yeah, there was a lot, a lot of comparisons to the Burkamp goal, and you could see it, particularly with the the second touch. I mean, he does well to keep the the ball in play. I think it's a pass from mm. Leonardo Spinazzola, and it really kind of kicks up off the turf. You so has to control it with his head, uh, and then as as I think it's Conrad Lima comes in, the fire engine rushing to the wrong fire. 
little chop inside with his with his right instep and then flashes it across the keeper with his left foot and you sort of I was going to say you felt the the fight go out of Austria then uh, but actually they they sort of stuck at it and you know we did look like we were potentially heading to a a grandstand finish um but as I think as as much as as much as Austria will will have been hurt to, to lose in in such agonizing fashion I think they you know gave a really good account of themselves I think Austrians are already even before uh, before this game. Austrians were already heroes to their fans. Uh, I think I mentioned on one of the earlier pods that you know Austria isn't really much into football anymore. It's not the 30s. It's not the Wunder team. It's not even the 54 uh, team which uh, finished um, finished third. Uh, it's been such a long time since they had any success, and no one really, especially after the pathetic defeat against Holland, no one really expected that performance they put in against Ukraine, which was just marvelous, which was proactive, which was um, heavy pressing, uh, which again, like everyone got everybody talking, got the fans excited, and that was a performance for the ages best in the generation and I thought today again they put in a very different performance but also the best in a generation was dogged they stuck at it even when they went 2-0 down and I thought that's it I just I stopped making notes I thought I'll just watch you know these last 15 minutes they could have scored twice then as well it was amazing they could barely move and then you could see at some point Italian legs started going as well and they they really like played absolutely beyond their abilities I think you know People like Alaba carry them through. I think Zabitza put another great shift in. And I mean, they're the big names. But I think, you know, compared to some of the other nations uh, of sort of similar statue, who absolutely bombed, uh, Austria basically did absolutely everything they could. And again, this is a team that was coming into the tournament with very, very low expectations. We're a very, very pessimistic public. And, you know, they're going to be coming back to Austria's heroes. Well, back to Austria they will go while Italy continue in the competition. They are now unbeaten in 31 matches, 26 of those victories. The longest run now in their history, as I mentioned, 1,169 minutes without conceding before that late college goal. How worried, though, should Mancini be about how easily Austria shut them down in, in that second half particularly? I thought from an Italy perspective, this was actually quite a reassuring uh, performance and result because it's, it's, it's they grounded not the Italy out. way. Yeah, it's not the Italy way to go through tournaments, <laughs> beating teams 2-0, 3-0, not letting goals in, you know, playing this fantastic football. You know, they've got no major corruption scandals hanging, hanging over their heads. The players are all speaking to the media. Surely you need some of these factors uh, hovering in the background if Italy are actually going to go on and win this thing. Um, but no, I think that, you know, when we all saw how Italy um, just steamrolled everyone in their group, um, and everyone was very impressed by that. And, and this was Italy having to produce a slightly different sort of performance. I mean, the first half suggested that they would go on uh, and win quite comfortably. And it reminded me mm. a bit of their opening game against Turkey, which was nil-nil at half time, but with Italy very much on top. Um, and within sort of 20 minutes of the second half, they'd put the game to bed. And you, you, saw, you thought the same thing would happen here. But as it happened, Austria you know, really sort of dug in, stepped things up a little bit and, and, and Mancini had to turn to his bench and, and that's ultimately where the breakthrough came through with, you know, obviously Chiesa and Pessina getting the goal. So I think actually, you know, it shows they can they can grind down slightly more obdurate opponents than those they came up against in the group phase uh, and it shows that they've got depth in the squad that, and that enables them to make changes and, and still be decisive, uh, you know, at the end of close matches. Mm. Well, that's that's certainly true about about the depth, but I wonder against a team with better finishes, perhaps against Austria, whether they might have paid a bigger price than they did today. What what was it that Austria did to knock them out of their stride after, as you say, such a swashbuckling first half? Well, I mean, they just they're a very well organised, very hard working team, and the Austria 
you know, the Austria first eleven is full of very good players. You know, they almost all play for leading German clubs. They've got a really good range of ages, you know, mid-late 20s, early 30s, a few youngsters, lots of energy. You've got Grilich and Leimer and Schlager in midfield sort of clogging things up. They've got a threat on the counter-attack with Sabitzer and uh, Arnautovic. You've got the experience of Hinteregger and Dragovic at the back. I mean, they were a relatively complete team. Um, and I think it was just, you know, it was hard work. It was, it was preventing Italy from sort of getting into the kind of passing triangles that have become their, their modus operandi under, under Mancini. Um, and yeah, in the end, Mancini had to, had to throw on some fresh legs because otherwise it didn't look like he was going to, you know, going to find a way of getting past them. Indeed, their confidence looked shook. Sasha? Um, I, I would I would give a special shout out to Grilich because I mean him coming into the central midfield in the last two games I thought he made he made a huge difference and gave them that platform and stability which could either protect uh, as they did today or could be used to be very aggressive as they did against Ukraine so I think he comes out of this tournament with his reputation greatly enhanced. Also, that, that you know the, the goal that was ruled out for offside, um, you know one of the narrowest VAR calls that we've seen in the tournament, uh, and at that stage, sixty five minutes. Uh, Austria were very much on top at that stage. You could, you know, you, you, it didn't feel as if the goal was undeserved. And had it stood, might have been a very different outcome. It might indeed. I'm out of it there, but Italy aren't out of it. He said, segueing neatly, and we'll be facing uh, Belgium or Portugal in the last eight. And then, because they're in the tricky side of the draw, they'll have somebody like France or Spain or Croatia in a semi-final if they get past Belgium or Portugal, which to be fair, is anything but a given. Uh, right, uh, that Belgium-Portugal game, of course, is coming up later on on Sunday, and we'll be talking about Sunday's matches next. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman, host of The England Show, brought to you daily throughout Euro 2020. I'll be joined by writers from The Athletic and special guests to bring you unrivaled coverage dedicated to the England team this summer. So for expert insight into Southgate's squad and post-game reaction to all the games, search for The England Show wherever you get your podcasts or via The Athletic app. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. On Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic, this is The Totally Football Show with James Richardson. Still to come on this exciting Totally at the Euros show, we've got some classic on this day fun. But now, let's talk about Sunday's round of 16 drama. Uh, Netherlands are taking on the Czech Republic. Belgium are taking on Portugal. And that, I put it to you, is the biggest game of the tournament so far. Exclamation mark, question mark. 
Uh, yes, I would agree. Okay, it's the holders against the number one ranked side in the world. That's Belgium. Have they lived up to their billing so far? Belgium or mm. Portugal? Well, let's say Belgium first of all. Yeah, I, I think we've seen glimpses of Belgium at their best. Uh, I mean, they they put three goals past Russia without really having to try. But I think the moment when everyone sort of really sat up and took notice was that second half of the second game against Denmark when they're... Was that they go a goal behind? Is that right? They were, they mm, were a goal yeah, down. Goal down, yeah. Not playing. And well then De Bruyne all. comes on, and Axel Witzel comes on, and Aiden Hazard comes on, and De Bruyne just starts completely running the show. And in the space of forty-five minutes, they score the two goals that that give them victory against the you know what we know to be a very good Denmark team. And then you thought, okay, this is why you know people get excited about Belgium. So yeah, I, I think out of all the favourites, they are. They're one of the few teams who have shown us a, a, a glimpse, a tantalising glimpse of their their absolute best football, um, and I okay. think it you know it puts them in a good position against a Portugal team who have flattered to deceive quite a lot, albeit one who seem to rediscover a bit of a bit of solidity in their final group game, that two two draw against France. Well, I think this is the interesting thing. The, the two teams come into this uh, like under very different conditions. Effectively, Belgium have barely played, whereas Portugal had to really play out of the skins to, to, to reach this stage. And curiously, I thought, well, reassuringly for the game, Fernando Santos, uh, the Portugal manager, was saying that uh, this game is going to be like a final. Um, the main thing is to win rather than to play beautiful football. So here we go, nil-nil penalties, um, perhaps. But I think maybe in this situation, it would be interesting to see whether, you know, uh, is it Renato Sanchez's renaissance continues, whether Bernardo Silva actually finally offers something. Um, it's hard to see Bruno Fernandes return to that midfield. But at the same time, Cristiano Ronaldo against that ageing back line, is he going to be completely starved of service or is he actually going to run them ragged? Just to pick up on, on Sasha's point about freshness, uh, Belgium have had two more days to prepare for this game than Portugal have had. Um, and all those key players have now picked up minutes and going into the tournament, we were saying, well, you know, how are they going to fare without De Bruyne in their opening game? And Axel Witzel hasn't played a game since January. And, you know, and Aiden Hazard, we know, has, has barely kicked the ball all season. And those players have all got decent minutes under their belt, so they should be a little bit fresher. I wonder how Portugal are going to approach this game in terms of their midfield configuration. Because what we saw in that France game was they put an extra man in central midfield, Renato Sanchez, and it gave them a lot more sort of industry, a lot more energy. And if you look at Belgium's options in the middle of the pitch, in their last group game against Finland, they played a midfield two of De Bruyne and Witzel, two excellent players, two key players to Belgium. But if they're going up against a three-man Portugal midfield that has the energy of Renato Sanchez in it, I wonder whether that be something that might be something they could struggle with. Or we could see De Bruyne perhaps playing slightly further forward, perhaps in the false nine role, and they bring in Yuri Tillmans perhaps to sort of beef things up a little bit. Um, but that I feel like that could be an area where Portugal could, could try and um, sort of harry Belgium out of their stride. And it would also be interesting to see like the role that Diogo Jota plays here, uh, whether he will be able to, to connect that sort of quite defensive shield of uh, uh, central midfield for Portugal and, and Ronaldo. So I think perhaps Jota in this game uh, could be the key player. Well, yeah, or, or it could be that fellow Romelu Lukaku who's been absolutely outstanding so far for Belgium. And you, you're right to question how the likes of uh, older Verold, <laughs> see what I did there, and uh, Vertonghen, are going to fare against the Portuguese, but uh, how how's the Portuguese backline going to do 
against the various Hazard uh, brothers and, and Lukaku. I don't know, but we will be finding out come Sunday evening. Roberto Martinez, of course, has now the most tournament wins of any Belgian manager ever. Extraordinary statistics. And he'll be on home soil in Spain, albeit, unfortunately, it's on that dreadful pitch in Seville, yeah. which hopefully won't, won't be too big a factor. Is that going to, is, is, is that going to, do you think that actually might affect it, that they won't be able to just run effectively or pass the ball or nothing? It's I mean, a it's, very good it's point. It's such a bad pitch. It leaps yeah. out at you. Every, every group game that was played there after about five minutes, sometimes you turn on the TV, you forget where a game's being played and you're sort of waiting for a little clue or for the commentator to mention it. But every time I watched a group game played in Seville, within about two minutes, you'd seen someone try try and control a pass and it had bounced away off his knee. And it was, ah, yes, we're at this weird little ground in Seville again. Also, it's going to be really hot there, they say. Expected to be around 30 degrees at kickoff, even at 9pm Spanish time. Biggest game yet and the best possible backdrop for it. Fantastic. That's, uh, what, 8 o'clock UK time. And uh, I'm sure we're all looking forward to that. Before that, a little antipasto, we've got a Netherlands taking on the Czech Republic, the Schick team, to borrow a Guardiolaism. Uh, Netherlands, perhaps the biggest surprise of the Euro so far. Two weeks ago when I departed, Netherlands had responded to getting their first tournament in seven years by appointing a comedy manager. I was shocked to see on my return that in a kind of reverse Charlton Heston, they haven't blown it all up, but instead have romped through the group and with the highest scorers, in the group stage. Let's ask Mikael Jongsma what's going on. Well, obviously, Fran de Boer is now considered the best manager in, in the world, but um, no, on a more serious note, it's still, I mean, the Dutch are very critical. Even if, um, if Dutch teams win, it's still very much about playing style, about seeing weaknesses. This could be more attractive. We could do better. Why is Martin Drone in the side? Why is Wout Weghorst in the side? All that kind of stuff. So it, it is a continuous debate. I don't think the Dutch would ever be happy with anything less than swashbuckling 6-0 victories over every possible competition. But uh, to be fair, like uh, the Dutch have been quite a bit more positive and uh, the three victories were all quite uh, convincing. It's clear that apart from the starting 11, that seems to be well solid enough. Um, and with the lack of any real um, favorite at this point, perhaps Italy is one, but um, the Dutch are very much in the mix behind them. Um, it feels like, especially with the way the draw has gone, uh, mm. the Netherlands actually have a good shot at reaching the semifinals, which would be remarkable given all of the unrest that there was before the tournament. We're speaking before Wales take on Denmark, but if you do get... Uh, through your clash with the Czech Republic, who are up next. That's You'll be facing the winner of that game, either Wales or Denmark, and then potentially England in a semi-final. So, Frank de Boer, Euro winner, are you ready for that? <laughs> I, I, I don't think anyone is, is, is ready for that. But it would be a really nice redemption for him, especially because in the Euros... Uh, folklore like in Dutch history is very much associated with missing penalties uh, which he did right. in, uh, in the Euro 2000 um, semi-final game against Italy when the Dutch were were probably the the favorites uh, and had a really strong team so for him uh, it probably means a bit more even than than it would for for anyone else um, yeah it's there it is very interesting because as I said before the tournament like the one thing that you're slightly concerned by is is the wing play um, 
Denzel Dumfries all of a sudden seems to be the new Cafu, which is fantastic. Uh, Patrick van Aanholt has had a decent tournament, but it's mainly that spine that holds the team together because they have looked solid, especially in the last two games with Matthijs de Ligt coming back in. Um, Stefan de Vrij is having a good tournament as well. Frankie de Jong is doing Frank de Jong things, which is, which is always good fun to watch. And even Martin de Roon has kind of justified his uh, inclusion by not playing against Northern Macedonia because the Dutch did, did look a bit more vulnerable in midfield. And I think the, the main man this tournament so far is probably Gini Wijnaldum, who looks nothing mm. like the economical, um, quite safe midfielder that he usually um, is for, was, I should say, for Liverpool, but is very much a flair player in this side. And with with the, the checks coming up, that they are a more serious competition or opposition than the Dutch have faced so far. But it's going to be very interesting how the Netherlands hold up. I would say that they are uh, overwhelming favourites, especially with the attacking um, options that they have. And the Czechs haven't, haven't been that impressive apart from Patrick Schick uh, doing incredible things. Um, and it's going to be really interesting in general how the Dutch are going to, to play against this Czech team. Because in terms of uh, team selection, Daniel Malen, who was really impressive against uh, North Macedonia, has definitely given Frank de Boer a bit of a headache who to, who to partner with Memphis up front. Hmm. You mentioned uh, Euro 2000. That's part of this extraordinary statistic that since winning the Euros in 1988, Netherlands have only ever won two more knockout games in all the Euro competitions since, and the Czechs have played their part in that. So you're quietly confident, whilst at the same time name-checking Patrick Schick, uh, that the that, that Netherlands are going to be OK this time, though. Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Ruud van Nistelrooy, the assistant manager, um, actually said like the team spirit in this team is like it's not something that I really recognize from my own time with uh, the Dutch national team. They all seem to get along very well. Um, they're very, very hungry as well. As you mentioned, uh, it's been seven years since uh, since the Dutch played in a national tournament. By that time, Denzel Dumfries actually was still an amateur footballer, and he's. He's 25 now, so that's quite remarkable too. So they all really want to shine on a on an international tournament. It's uh, it, I mean Memphis Depay and Genie Wijnaldum are two uh, that have actually had that experience. Stefan de Vrij is another one. But for a lot of these players, it's it's a very new opportunity, and especially with the delay that you had due to the pandemic, that hunger has actually uh, even grown quite a bit. And um, it seems yeah, it seems like a very very uh, uh, very good group of, of people. And they look well equipped to, to, well, get past the Czechs. And I would say that, yeah, the route to the, at least the semi-final is actually wide open. Wow, Mikhail, I can't believe it. So you're actually confident that this isn't just the fruit of being in an easy group with Ukraine, Austria and North Macedonia, but this Netherlands side is for real. Yeah, but that's partly due to the other countries not impressing that much either. I think the, the fun thing about this Euro so far is that Every team seems to have a flaw, and it, if it's if it's a, a striker that that can hardly stay on side or, or get a goal, like in the case of Spain uh, or with England, it's basically the same. To be fair, uh, you have France looking well, not very impressive. The Germans needing um, last-minute uh, goals to to even qualify against Hungary, and even the Belgians who have been looking uh, decent from time to time, we're not that convincing in their group either, despite the three wins. So um, I'm not saying the Dutch are that brilliant, but it's it's definitely a case of, um, yeah, just a lot of pe- a lot of teams looking to contend. And with the draw going their way, I think um, everybody expects either Germany, England or the Netherlands uh, to push through on this end of the 
of the draw, um, yeah, I would say that the Dutch would have a have a chance against those teams as well. So it's yeah, it's the the pessimism ahead of the tournament where where people were actually saying, well, we'll see if we'll even uh, win a game, um, has definitely <laughs> been uh, replaced by by that typical Dutch arrogance that I'm uh, kind of um, guilty of at this point as well. But maybe I'll uh, I'll get all the abuse on Sunday evening by people saying, haha. You arrogant Dutchies. There you go. 5-0 against the Czechs. Mikhail Jongsma, who's in a brilliant form. Uh, the Czechs, very much the Netherlands bogey side, not only preventing the Orangia for qualifying for Euro 2016, the last edition, but also that famous come-from-behind victory at Euro 2004. What do you think of the Czechs' chances? They They came into this as one of the one of the third place outfits to make it out of the group stage. What do you what do you think of their chances against the high flying Dutch? I mean, from what we've seen from the Czechs so far, it's hard to see them go for another three two, given how miserly they've been. They've barely allowed any shots, and mm. they barely had any shots themselves. I mean, they settled for a one one with Croatia. They were already through when they were playing England, and you know I think they were pretty pretty happy just to go through at that stage. So it's hard again. It's 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 it is one of those teams that's hard to understand where exactly they stand. Of course, Schick is in decent form, and uh, Socek, with one of the partners in, in the 4-2-3-1, has been fairly solid. But again, it's, it's, it feels a bit like, not quite like Belgium, but again, a team that hasn't really has had to show everything for all three games. Right. They had nine shots on target in their three group stage games, but seven of those nine came in their opening match against Scotland. Schick, who you mentioned there, is the scorer of all their goals so far. Um, three of them, and one was from the halfway line, of course. Very nice it was, too. I wonder whether um, one potential avenue to success for the Czech Republic could be on set pieces, um, because uh, Netherlands have looked a little bit shaky uh, on defensive set pieces uh, in the tournament so far, conceded a, uh, a goal from a free kick in their first game against Ukraine, um, and Czechs have got some big lads, Thomas Suchek, who we know all about from uh, his exploits with West Ham last season, very dangerous uh, at set pieces. Patrick Schick as well, who, who scored a header against um, against Scotland. Um, so that that might be one area where where the Czechs can can cause the Netherlands some problems. Netherlands also have looked quite shaky at the back against Ukraine. Also, Macedonia had that opener that was a shade offside, and then they hit the post. Plus, they're no longer going to be playing in Amsterdam. Anyway, we'll see what happens come Sunday afternoon. And, of course, Totally will be back with you Monday morning to report on that and the Belgium-Portugal game. Very, very shortly, we'll get a little bit of an update on the situation in St. Petersburg, where we got the first of the quarterfinals taking place on Friday. Or at least that's the plan. And also, we'll have a very special on this day in Euro's history, particularly if you are a Scottish or Welsh fan. First, though, let's get some odds from Paddy Power. It's over to producer Ben. Thank you very much, Jimbo. I'm on the line with Jason Murphy from Paddy Power. Jason, let's look ahead to tomorrow's games then in the last 16. It's going to be exciting. Uh, Holland versus Czech Republic to start with. Um, could there be four or more goals in this one? Could be. Four or more goals, it's 11 to 5. That's saying essentially it happens 31% of the time. And if you think it'll happen more often than that, then you can certainly have a look at it as an angle. But do be aware that we do see the goal rates drop off in knockout stages. The drama, the tension goes up. 
people don't go chasing more goals when they have a lead to hold on to. And what I would also advise is the Dutch came out with what was a weak group. If you look at their formation, say, against the Ukraine, it suited them because Ukraine were 4-3-3. The Dutch had the natural whip with Van Aanholt, Dumfries, and it played into their hands, whereas this Czech Republic side are going to go with a 4-2-3-1. And that defensive box that you're going to see with Holis and Suchek it's going to eat up that space, that space that Wijnaldum has been getting a lot of opportunities from. So for me, for this game, given the knockout nature of it, I'd actually have a look at under 2.5 goals at about 10 to 11. It's probably a slightly better angle. Well, over to Belgium versus Portugal then. Uh, looks fabulous on paper. I think it's going to be absolutely terrible and cagey and nil-nil-tastic. <laughs> Can you give us, please, some overalls in this one? Yeah, so Belgium to win in 90 minutes. We have an enhanced price there of 6-4. to four. We have Portugal 11-5. to five. But I really like that Belgian price. Like you say, on paper, I can understand what the price is that. But if you get down to the nitty-gritty of the tactics and the players that are going to execute the tactics, this Belgium 3-4-3 against this Portugal 4-3-3, Belgium hold all the aces because Germany went with that 3-4-3 and we've seen the damage that it did to Portugal. If you continue with the likes of that formation with a... Torgan Hazard, Thomas Munier on the wings. You have Lukaku will stay central and pin the centre-backs. That's going to leave a lot of space for Eden Hazard, Kevin De Bruyne to do what to do best. The only thing with that that suits Portugal potentially is the counter-attacks. And we've seen that being executed devastatingly for that opening goal against Germany. But the midfield three that Portugal have, it's probably Renato Sanchez. Danilo, if he's fitting well, it, it's not a Xavi, Iniesta or Busquets. It's not going to play to that advantage. So for me, Belgium at 6-4 to four is the best bet. But if you want a bit of a fun, interesting angle, Ronaldo, the scored penalty. It's essentially Portugal scored penalty. It's five to one in the sports book. Ronaldo's success rate from penalties is running about 84%. He's a little bit above average, but look, we all know he's more than above average. And it's just another interesting angle, but definitely Belgium at six to four to win this game, to me, is one of the best bets for this knockout last 16 games. The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power. Find a bookie who loves you right back as much as Gareth loves right backs. Place a four plus fold bet builder on any football match and get money back as a free bet if one leg lets you down. Check paddypower.com for more details. £10 max free bet. T's and C's apply. 80 plus. BeGambleAware.org. Sign up for a subscription with The Athletic. It's just £1 a month for your first six months. Head to theathletic.com slash totally. You get all the articles, all the podcasts ad-free, including The England Show, the latest episode of which features David Priest and is all about penalties. Uh, you can also read George Culkin's piece with the likes of Alan Shearer and Paul Gascon on what it's like to be a spot kick taker for the three lines in a major tournament. Crikey, all of that and much more for a pound a month. Sasha, quarterfinals start on Friday uh, with the game scheduled in St. Petersburg. But the situation there in health terms is looking pretty dramatic. What's the latest? Yeah, it's looking pretty grim. And um, I think at one stage a few months ago, it would be easy to think that uh, Russia basically abolished COVID the way that everyone was going about it. Uh, and in recent weeks, there's been a surge. Um, it's definitely a surge in Moscow. There is also one in St. Petersburg. I think the latest, they had over 2,500 cases. And of course, the problem is, it's not like in the UK where everyone's getting vaccinated. In Russia, there is there's a lot of skepticism around it. So to the extent that they're now um, basically companies or government um, entities are for- forcing employees to, uh, to vaccinate. And to the extent, I think some... Uh, restaurants in some cities would introduce the whole thing about if you're not vaccinated, you can't come in. So they're really forcing the population to, you know, to, to, to take the vaccine. So if you take example of St. Petersburg and actually tangible results of going to St. Petersburg. So I think the Finns have reported 120 cases uh, amongst fans returning uh, from, from from the Euros, which, is, which isn't cool. Um, and 
One maybe saving grace, uh, if, for example, France and Spain make it uh, to St. Petersburg, is that there won't be many traveling fans. Actually, it struck me in 2012 how little French traveling support was. Um, and I think for Spain, I'm not sure it's going to be that much bigger. So perhaps the saving grace is there won't be too many fans coming in from abroad. Uh, however, even this week, they have this annual celebration uh, in St. Petersburg of you know kids finishing school. And there's, there's like the, these, these videos of these squares full of people uh, all mm. over each other um, in the current situation, uh, which, which I find absolutely astonishing. Um, so I think, you know, in terms of the quarterfinal, I think they'll, they'll, mud, they'll muddle through, uh, but uh, the COVID situation is going to get worse and worse. We're hearing that Croatia's even Perisic has just tested positive for COVID, uh, which is worrying news for him, of course also for the team ahead of their clash on Monday with with Spain. And, uh, yeah, we'll see how that story develops in the days to come. Best wishes to him anyway. Uh, next up, let's have a little bit of On This Day in Euros history. And it's a special one today. Uh, I refer to the 27th of June, 2016. <laughs> Yeah, national holiday in Scotland, Wales and many other uh, right-thinking areas of the world. England, who'd gone a goal up against Iceland in their most recent last 16 game at the Euros. Thanks to a Wayne Rooney penalty, saw things take a spectacular turn for the worst. Ragnar Sigurdsson immediately equalising for Iceland. Then, as Steve McLaren bigged up his side's chances of responding well, Keep getting uh, pressure on the Iceland back four. The only thing that they have got is the big boy up front, Sigurdsson, who really, Sigthorsson. Oh, my oh words. My oh. A Joe Hart clanger allowed Sigurdsson to make it 2-1. And the rest, well, it's history, isn't it? I remember it well. I was there um, ah. at the Allianz Riviera. I was on the England beat at Euro 2016. Right. Um, and had seen Wales qualify for the quarterfinals two days previously uh, by beating Northern Ireland 1-0 in Paris. So it was already in quite a chipper mood and then sat there in the, in the stadium uh, on a balmy evening in Nice, surrounded by uh, the great and the good of the England press back uh, and watched England slump to their biggest humiliation since the 1950 World Cup. Yeah, it wasn't just that they went behind. They had 70 minutes to sort it out, but instead you had treats like that uh, cane free kick, which might have injured you or someone near you. I'm not sure, Tom. So wild did it did it fly. Hodgson, meanwhile, morphing into a meme on, on the sideline. You quite possibly were there then post-game when he resigned. And this is kind of... Some people might feel this is topical, a, a senior figure in the England setup resigning without ever mentioning the kind of big issue. Um, in this case, the fact that they just lost to Iceland for Hodgson. And then he had that second press conference the next day because they told him he, he ought to go back and and he said, I don't know what I'm doing here. I thought my statement last night was sufficient. It was, it was surreal. It was, yeah. They announced his resignation in a statement after the game. And then I don't think he came in to do his press conference. I might be wrong. Really? But then the following day, back in Chantilly, so everyone has had to you know, leave Nice and track all the way back up to the England camp. He gets led into this press conference in a little press marquee that had been set up there. And he sat down and the first thing he said was, I don't know why I'm here. I said what I had to say in my statement yesterday. I don't think I've got, I've got anything to add. 
and he was sat there with um, what was he called Martin Glenn um, who was in charge of the FA at the time and one of the most surreal press conferences I've ever sat through because he didn't want to be there he didn't have any answers to any questions and yeah it was uh, it was quite a bleak uh, quite a bleak experience mm. uh, the headline writers enjoyed it Ice Wallies that was one Poundland 1 Iceland 2 Cod help us, and you know, etc., and so on. Anyway, England will have their first last 16 match at the Euros since that fateful day on Tuesday when they'll take on Germany, as you're probably aware. Sasha, did that game produce as much merriment around your way as it did with Tom? Uh, well, around my way was coming back on the Eurostar. Um, via Lille and we I think watched the first half in Lille as we had to disembark and it was 1-1 and then we emerged out of the tunnel on the other side with England being 2-1 down and heading out of the tournament uh, I think with Russia at the time I think they were more, more concerned about Russia being absolutely dreadful and they were still going through the aftermath of Russia going out in the group stages so it wasn't really merriment it was a bit like wow they've done that good I think the reaction was more like well done Iceland rather than LOL at England uh, right so, yeah. well indeed and if, if you recall, there was a bit of a there was a bit of a, a, a PR issue for the Wales squad because a video of them uh, raucously celebrating Iceland's victory was leaked from within the camp. Basically, all the Wales squad all sat around to watch the the game, and then there was yeah, fairly right a celebration um, involving what seems to be pretty much the entire squad when Iceland won. And the way right. they explained it was that it wasn't an anti-England thing. They were rooting for the underdogs, you know, plucky old Iceland. Right, well, so you know, which Case is closed. understandable. Plus, you know, if you don't want people to root against nations, don't have national football. I mean, that, that's what it's all well, about. Well, quite. Anyway, there you go on that important point. I think that's where we come to the end of our coverage of Saturday's action. As I mentioned, there's another one of these on the way Monday morning when we'll be back with the, oh, Michael Cox and Duncan Alexander will be giving us their thoughts on Sunday's games and looking ahead at the Monday stuff. For now, it's many, many thanks to Tom and Sasha and producer Charlie, who's been up all night literally with this listener, and you for hopefully enjoying it. We'll see you soon. For now, from Totally at the Euros, it's goodbye. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Listen ad-free on the Athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Keep up to date with everything Totally at The Totally Show on Twitter and find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.